The theme of tonight's talk is the Buddhist concept or teaching on papancha. And even if this is a new term or concept for you, I'm sure I'll only have to say a few words for you to know what I'm talking about, because unfortunately, we can all relate to this process. Papancha is the tendency of the mind to run on and on and on and on, to obsess, to fantasize, to dwell on stuff. You, you can really see it in this way, this experience that many of us have of this ongoing commenter, commentary on our experience. It's like there's a narrator in our heads that's remarking on everything that we experience. And this is not something that's unique to meditators. Uh, I found in uh, the cartoon script, strip Boondocks, which has that couple of feisty kids that have gone to live with their grandfather. And uh, Huey is walking along with another friend, and he says, sometimes I think my brain works differently than most people's. For example, do you ever, like, narrate your life in your own head as it happens, like it was a History Channel-type documentary? And the other kid just really grumpily says, no. But then the thought bubble from that kid who says no goes, and then Caesar's best friend Huey asked him yet another weird and stupid question. It would not be the last. (laughs) And that's what we do. It's amazing how uh, ongoing this tendency to comment on our experience is, and this narration, this constant companion I often think about this um, stream of words in the mind. It's a bit like in in, uh, sports on television. They have what's called the color commentator. Do you know that concept? And that's, you know, there's the play-by-play guy who just says what's happening. And then there's the person that adds all of the background information and the statistics and the predictions. And it's like, you know, when a skier is coming down a slope, that, that, you know, young woman at the Olympics who who showed off and then, you know, she fell over and she lost the gold medal. Every time she skis now, the color commentator will go, oh, this is what she did last time. They'll, you know, they remember all of the bad things that you ever did. And, oh, she has to be careful because last time she really screwed up right here. She better watch out. Or, you know, if Tiger Woods is going through a bad patch, they'll just rattle off all the times he didn't make it. And if he's going through a great patch, you know, how invincible he is. It's just that, that, that we... We, it seems like we need it to, to, to get excited about our life, to put it in perspective, even if what the commentary is saying is somewhat negative about the ways we've screwed up in the past, but it's there as our constant companion. It can sometimes seem like what we're doing instead of living our lives is starring in a film about our lives, where, where, you know, the central casting character right there at the center, as I said the other day, everything's about me. Um, but we not only star in it, we script it, we direct it, and then we critique it, and we edit it, and we produce it, and we do the whole shebang over and over again about uh, our lives and, and what it's like and give it gradings. You know, that that didn't work out so well. You know, they should remake that section. That was not successful at all. This is papancha. And all, you know, that's just one of the forms. I'll talk more about them. But I love this word because it's so onomatopoeic. You know, papancha, it sounds very Italian. But that's what it's like. It's this this, um, very expressive functioning of the mind that just takes any little thing and runs wild with it into all directions. The root meaning of this word is uh, spreading out or diffusion, and you can often see it defined as that, or complication or elaboration. I think these are all helpful ways to understand this, but in all of the ways that it's defined in Buddhist terminology, it has a negative connotation to it. It's not, you know, creative, happy thinking. It's really with this sense of obsession Um, about whatever we're experiencing. And you can see how it's fueled by the kalesas that we've talked about so often, of greed, aversion, and delusion. 
very much a part of this process. And I thought it's interesting that the Buddha, in his wisdom, came up for a name for this place that most of us spend most of our time. Now you know what, where that, what that realm is. It's the realm of Papancha. So he did talk about it quite a lot. There's actually a number of different suttas in the traditional teachings where this, uh, the role of Papancha in causing suffering is talked about. And it, it is considered essential to understand because the way the mind works, this um, movement of the mind uh, obsessing around and holding on to experience is really central to uh, understanding the teaching of anatta, not self, because papancha creates self, and we really need to see and understand how it works to begin to free ourselves from being constantly caught in that construction. And in papancha, there's always a sense of separation. As I said, often the way we experience it is with ourselves as the star of this movie, and you are just all the supporting characters you know, in my movie, and I'm sure you all feel the same about the rest of us. And so there's always this sense of separation, of distance, and papancha also projects onto the other and the external, takes our internal experience and labels, um, creates a whole world, a whole reality out there through this filter of papancha, which is not the wisest filter to have on the world. And it's seen um, as the cause of many, many difficult mind states, Again, why it's so important to understand. And external problems. Papancha is often talked about in the text as being the cause of all conflict. That it really is about the way the mind holds on to experience, makes a strong sense of self and other, and separates and makes the other um, them. You know, that difference between us and them. And it's very much connected to holding on to views and opinions, which of course are a great source of conflict in the world. All forms of quarreling, of lying, and of slander are really seen as, as wound up in this, in, in Papancha. So beginning to understand it and seeing how it works in our experiences is really essential. So I want to read um, a short part of, it's actually the opening of a short story that some of you may recognize. It's getting a little old now, but for me it was when I thought of, when I think of Papancha, this is where my mind tends to go in understanding how prevalent it is. We're going through. The commander's voice was like thin ice breaking. He wore his full dress uniform with a heavily braided white cap pulled rakishly over one cold gray eye. We can't make it, sir. It's spoiling for a hurricane, if you ask me. I'm not asking you, Lieutenant Berg, said the commander. Throw on the power lights. Rev her up to 8,500. We're going through. The pounding of the cylinders increased. Tapakata, pakata, 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 pakata. The commander stared at the ice forming on the pilot window. He walked over and and twisted a row of complicated dials. Switch on number eight auxiliary, he shouted. Switch on number eight auxiliary, repeated Lieutenant Berg. Full strength in number three turret, shouted the commander. Full strength in number three turret. The crew bending to their various tasks in the huge hurtling eight-engined Navy hydroplane looked at each other and grinned. The old man will get us through, they said to one another. The old man ain't afraid of hell. Not so fast. You're driving too fast, said Mrs. Mitty. What are you driving so fast for? Hmm, said Walter Mitty. He looked at his wife in the seat beside him with shocked astonishment. So I know some of you won't recognize it, but I can tell that some of you do. That is James Thurber, the author, and his amazing creation, Walter Mitty, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And in a very short story, it's only a few pages long, our dear friend Walter Mitty, our familiar ally in this, loses himself time and time again in these, fanta in these fantasies where he's the hero, where he saves the day, he's a surgeon, he's a you know, commander of a plane, um, what else, did, I can't remember what else he does. 
and he he gets out of his humdrum kind of henpecked existence by going off in these flights of fantasy. And this is often our experience with Papancha, where we look around at how we see ourselves, how we take ourselves to be, our environment. It's not good enough. It's not exciting enough. We're not exciting enough. And we zoom off into this other realm of existence of fantasy where we can be brave and beautiful and successful or whatever it might be. But this thump always has to happen where in this case, Mrs. Mitty says, you know, you're driving too fast. What are you doing? Slow down, put on the brakes. And it's like, oh, oh, this is my reality. And it's interesting to see how this, uh, in creating this character and how his fantasies worked, uh, there's always that sound, which is something he hears outside in the environment, but it always comes into his imagining as the sound of the plane or the machine that's you know in the surgery or whatever it is. And that is what happens with Papancha. There's something in our environment that triggers some association. And conscious or unconscious, off we go into this fantasy realm. Again, this is Papancha. So as we sit down in meditation, of course, it's our intention to stay present, to be with our moment-to-moment experience. But I'm sure by now there is no one here who has not over and over again had this experience of the mind going off all over the place. Past, future, Hawaii, third grade, work, family, you know, the people, the difficult people, romance, whatever it might be, it's endless. And, you know, if we could only sort of see all of the places you've been over these past weeks together, you've been very busy, haven't you? It's Joseph and, and Sharon often talk about what it would be like if everyone's thoughts could actually be projected out. What a cacophony would be in this meditation hall. It would be deafening. And it would just be like these worlds arising and collapsing over and over again. This is monkey mind, restless mind, this, this inability to be in the present moment. This kind of thinking, this kind of thought pattern is very different from um, what can be useful ways of thinking, where we're um, reflective or investigating our experience, that, that they can be very helpful uses of our mental capacity. But this kind of thinking is usually, should I say, never helpful. It, 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 the thing is, though, it's become so constant for us is so much a constant companion that we often don't recognize that it's there. This commenting, this remarking, this judging, this comparing. And it often only is once we sit down in meditation and start to quieten a little, we see how prevalent it is, how loud it is, how obtrusive it is, how it doesn't have a volume control, doesn't seem to have an off switch. It's just always going on. But I think meditation can and does show us that it doesn't have to be that way, that it's not an inherent part of our experience. There actually is an off switch to papancha. And even though it may not feel like you're a lot quieter than the beginning of the retreat, you really are. There is definitely a shift that's happened But because you're more sensitive, it can seem like this commentary is there just as strong as ever. But believe me, it isn't. There's, of course, also a way in which as the end of the retreat draws a little closer, even though it's still quite a way away in the scheme of things, the energy starts to arise and all those forward-thinking thoughts that you're having are, again, another form of papancha. So you can feel that energy coming up and how feeding it by allowing those thoughts to proliferate actually increases the likelihood. You may have had some sense of really sinking in to the quiet here in the retreat and now that energy is percolating up and Papancha is 
again, more, more with us than it was. So how does this process work of papancha? It, as I said, in this, it's mentioned a number of times in the suttas, and there's a, a number of different ways that this process uh, opens up. So I'll just mention one that I like because it's fairly simple and one that I think we can connect with. The, the Buddha often gave these you know, linear progressions of things, and this is one of, one of those variations. So he said there's contact, leads to feeling, feeling tone, vedna that we've spoken about, of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. From that vedna, there's a perception, and the perception leads to thinking, and then the thinking leads to the perceptions and categories of papancha. So we'll go through this a little more slowly. But you can see just through that list how papancha is actually a development of thinking. There's a way in which we can think that's not papancha. You can think of papancha as being thinking on steroids. It's kind of like thinking with muscle. So it begins with contact. As I said, there's some impingement. For Walter Midia was this noise, to pocketa, pocketa, pocketa. You might start to notice, what is it that gets you on this train, especially if there's a particular train that you like to ride? What is it that usually lands you there? Sometimes it can be something like some discomfort in the body, and we use the papancha as an escape. We go into fantasy so to see what that is. So some sense impingement. There's the Vedana associated with that, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Then a perception is, comes about based on that Vedana. Now, perception is one of the aggregates, and in the Buddha's teachings, it has a very uh, specific kind of meaning. It's the recognition or naming of something, physical or mental, inner or outer. Whenever we name something or know something, even if we don't necessarily name it, that's perception, just as I know this is a bell or a glass. That's this process of sanya or perception. What's important to recognize about perception is that it's conditioned. It's not inherent in the object itself. The way we perceive an object is formed out of our conditioning. Whether we see an object or experience as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is also conditioned. Perception is another layer of conditioning on top of that. Usually we're not aware of that layering, though, or that, that subjectivity in our experience. Um, we, and, and then we start to think about what we perceive. So very very common example is sitting in meditation there's a pain in the ankles from sitting. You can just notice pain or even ankle. You know, there's some thoughts in the mind. That's not papancha. But when the mind starts to go, oh no, here it is again, happened yesterday, got really bad, they'll have to, you know, what if it, I really break something here, I know this is worse than it's ever been before and it's going, only going to get worse and they'll have to cart me out of here on a stretcher. That's papancha. So it's that elaboration of just the initial experience of what was just a strong sensation. So it's this roller coaster of likes and dislikes and judgments and, and fantasies, past and future, really taking us out. And the key is that we're lost. We don't have in, while we're lost in papancha, there isn't connection to current moment experience. And usually there's some strong sense of self created in that. So uh, just an example in my own experience, um, as I've mentioned, I'm from Australia, haven't actually lived there for about 25 years. I've lived in four continents now, been here for quite a while. And the last number of years, probably 10 or so as my parents were getting older, my mom died about eight years ago, I started to go back more regularly. When, when I left Australia, I, I didn't go back for six years, and then I only went back very intermittently. And uh, 
as I said, more recently had started to go back regularly. And after a few years of going back regularly, I started to notice this pattern that would happen once I started planning a trip. And I usually only go once a year and I have to plan a fair way ahead just because of my schedule and also because I used to I try to use my frequent flyer miles to go so to make it affordable. Um, so I have to plan some way ahead. And I would notice this process that would happen. You know, once I got the date of when I was going, I just naturally start to think about the people that I would meet there and, of course, begin with my family, my father and my mother when she was there, and my home. They still live in the home I was born in and all of the associations there, and I have five brothers and sisters, so I'd think about them. And, you know, of course, I would see all of them. It was, you know, a pretty set pattern of what we'd do when, when I'd go there. But then I'd start to think about all the people I hadn't seen for the last, whatever, 10, 15 years, my old schoolmates and college friends and people at the place I used to work before I left uh, Australia. And so I'd start to think, well, maybe I should, you know, try and find them. So this person or that person. I'd lost touch. I've lost touch with virtually everyone. There's only one friend I've really kept in touch with, and I. So it would be quite an effort to try and you know find these people again. But the internet makes it possible. So I think maybe I'd try and find this person. I'd start thinking about them, and of course all the associations. Um, but of course they would be associations from when I was 25 or younger, because that's how old I was when I left Australia. And now I'm much older, and so. The comparing mind would come in. It's kind of like, well, who would they be like now? But then the big question would come up, well, who am I now in relationship to that person twenty uh, of 25 or younger? And I think, well, you know, now I'm, you know, I live in California. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, they're still stuck in Australia. And, you know, I teach meditation. What, what would they think? Of, that's pretty cool, isn't it, you know? You know, my name's on the internet, and, the, you know, there'd just be the, this kind of sense. And then I think, well, you know, but 10 years ago, I, I looked different. I was younger, you know. Was I thinner back then? And I, Maybe I should go on a diet before I go back to Australia, so, you know, I'll look like I used to when they knew me, and I won't look that much. And this whole construct would begin of, you know, what I'd say and what I would look like and what I did and where I lived packaging this sense of self for these almost mythical people that I've lost touch with. But the thing that I really noticed is I would go back and I never got in touch with these people. It's, I, I recognize I've now, I've, I don't do it so much anymore because I saw the pattern. I do, I've never got in touch, but I must admit I'm just planning another trip and the, the little thought started to, oh, maybe I could get back. And I'd say, just don't even go there, you know. <laughs> But what you really see is Papancha has no shame. You know, it's not only creating a sense of self, it's creating a better sense of self, you know, one that's thinner and wiser and more cosmopolitan than what I actually am. So I would impress people. And once I, I just had to laugh when I saw how much I did that. And you can probably recognize that tendency. I heard this great quote. It was from um, this French, 16th sense French philosopher, Michel de Montaigne. He said, My life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. Isn't that, isn't that papancher at work? All the dramas of our life that we, you know, for me it was fantasies of good things, but the same with the difficulties. When we actually look, how many of them actually come true in the way we think they might? So you can see how perception colors our experience, this naming and singling out of experience. It's influenced by our past, by our memories and associations. And this is so predominant in our culture that people actually get paid to proliferate. And it's basically what um, editorials are about or or those opinions pages People are being paid for their papancha, for taking some single event and making it into this big drama of possibilities and, and compare, comparisons and things like that. It's, it's what goes on all the time, both on a political level, but you can see it in all the other areas of life. Movie reviews are a great thing where you, know, you read a movie review and you go see the movie and you come out and think, did we see the same movie? You know, it was raving about this dark, quirky, 
witty thing and you sort of like, it was stupid or whatever it is. So you have to see how people live in this world where they take this process of papancha, this proliferation as reality. We really think that there's so much truth in it. But if you look at how differently we see experience, you can start to undermine the tendency to hold on to papancha. I was at a, we were teaching a retreat in Perth a few years ago, and there was a, a guy who was a policeman on the retreat. And he told me, a, you know, the story that I've, I've heard many times, that it is always more interesting when someone tells it to you directly, about his experience of interviewing people about the scene of a crime, something that happened, and interviewing 10 different people and having them all tell him 10 completely different versions of what went on. You know, we've heard this, but just to see the reality of this, we think so much that the truth is out there somewhere, and it's all filtered through these perceptions and these conditions. I often watch the the Daily Show to get the real news. You know, it's the only place you can actually find real news, and they're always jabbing at things. And you know, there'd been some catastrophe, and they have these supposed pundits who come on. And someone asked this guy who was meant to know, "Could you speculate on the rumor of the theory of you know what happened?" And that's what's going on in the media all the time. It's speculations of rumors, of theories, of ideas, of projections. How much truth is it? I mean, if, if the media actually only printed what the, they knew to be true, it would be a very thin newspaper, wouldn't it? There wouldn't be much on the, on the Internet, that's for sure. The Buddha made this challenging statement. He said, in whatever way you conceive, it is other than that. In whatever way you conceive, it is other than that. Kind of a bit shocking, isn't it? Can we really believe that? We really think that there's truth in what we see. The Talmud says we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. We're filtering all the time through our perceptions. So again, just to, to, to go over how this actually functions in our experience The first part of papancha, of the process, is almost automatic. It's a little impersonal. With the contact, which we can't control, whatever arises in our experience, you know, the bell rings or whatever sounds, experiences, they just arise. The vedana arises with the object. It's not the object. It is conditioned. So it's not inherent or a truth of the object, but it's so connected to the object that it's very difficult for us to separate the two. So there's almost an automatic process going here. And then the next stage of perceptions, if we're not aware of it, of course, is also pretty automatic, that naming and recognizing. But this is actually the beginning of when this process becomes personal or subjective especially once we start to think about those perceptions, it's, of course, very personal. It's very subjective. It is out of our conditioning. And if we don't recognize this, this is when it can become out of control. But it's interesting that even in this part of the process that's very subjective, very conditioned, we invest it with a certain authority just because it's there, just because we're experiencing it, thinking it, feeling it. We identify with it, so it's very uh, related to self, to I, to me, to mine, and it becomes our truth, it becomes our reality. Now, normally, you know, in the world as it is, where you not often encouraged to question our thoughts and our feelings. Because we have them, they must be true. The Buddha begged to differ. Now, of course, there is a relative truth 
to these experiences. You know, you're having them, so they have that relative sense of truth. But they're not the truth with a capital T, and we forget this so often. And because of that, we wind up in what the Buddha described as unwholesome, in unwholesome states of mind. He said that papancha is very connected to and manifests in these three um, defilements or three uh, taints of craving, which we've spoken about a lot, tanha, conceit or mana, this comparing mind of better, worse, or the same as, to the very subtlest of levels, and views and opinions, or ditti. This is the realm in which papancha thrives. This is the food for papancha. It both is fed by it and it feeds it. And when we're not aware of it, this is often where we end up. We end up in craving or aversion, as you know. They're they're really two sides of the same coin of wanting or not wanting, craving or aversion. Holding on to, this is mine, this sense of I want or I don't want big part of papancha. And of course, comparing and judging. As, you know, as I did in mine, there was a lot of greed and clinging in that papancha about going back to Australia, but also a lot of comparing. You know, where am I in relationship to these old friends? What are they doing now? What am I doing now? And, you know, how, what will that seem like through their eyes? And that's also where Walter Mitty got his fantasies from because his life was so unfulfilling. He had to create this fantasy life to actually feel alive. And of course, holding on to views and opinions. This is such a huge one. My beliefs. This is the truth. Every, <clears throat> excuse me, everyone should think the way I do. Or even worse, everyone does think the way I do. You know, there, there's a way in which in this country getting so polarized, there's, there's an impossibility of dialogue because people can't conceive of having different views, that there's any validity to views other than their own. So all of these areas are ways that we can, are places we can end up in when we let papancha run wild. And so you can see the suffering that can come out of particularly these three areas because eventually the fantasy has to end. The, the bubble that you hold the truth, hopefully, gets punctured and some reality, some real reality sets in. And you can see that that was just a fantasy or obsessing about something didn't solve whatever problem. You're still back exactly where you were. Now, it's important to recognize that not all thoughts are papancha, that papancha is this proliferation of experience. There's ways to use thought creatively and wisely and and in relationship to what's going on that's uh, both not papancha but also very necessary to, to plan a little so that things happen, uh, to recognize um, what needs to be done in certain situations. You could say metta is a form of non, non-papancha kind of thinking because it's so present moment connected. Uh, beautiful thoughts of generosity or kindness because they're really related to wholesomeness and to staying with our experience aren't usually papancha. But you recognize this when you're not lost in story. There's some awareness of your reality, of the environment, of relationship, of of connection. And so you can see that it's even possible to plan um, and not get involved in papancha. It's just a process of clarifying what it is you need to do to take care of a certain situation. So say, for example, you want to do something like paint your kitchen. There's a lot of planning that needs to be done. You need to make the list of what you want to do, and you need to decide on a color and go to the hardware store and buy the paint and the brushes and the tape and everything that you need. 
And so you can do all of that without being caught in papancha. But as always, there's the slippery slope where you can take that somewhat simple process. I know it's not simple to paint anything, but somewhat simple process and go off into papancha. So you know, it's very natural that you want to paint your kitchen. You have to have some idea of what it's going to look like. So you'll know, you know whether you, what direction you want to go with all the amazing choices that are out there now. So what the kitchen will look like. But then it's inevitable that, well, I want it to be different. It's got to be special. It's got to be, what are the latest fashionable trends in color and faux finishes and paints and things like that? And so the mind can go off in that, this wanting to be unique or wanting to be different. And then what will my friends think? And so the mind goes on to, well, after it's finished, I'll invite them over and we'll have a dinner party and they'll comment and they'll say how great it is and, oh, you're so good at this and you should take up interior decorating. And before we know it, we're the next Martha Stewart just from, you know, wanting to paint the kitchen. This is when we get lost in papancha. And so it's really important for us to recognize because that door is constantly opening for us to go to papancha. And to, to really see that it's not a helpful place, not a helpful way to live our lives, to be lost in that all the time. So how to work with this movement of mind? The simple advice the Buddha gave was to seclude the senses, to actually guard the sense doors, as we often talk about, and this is very much what we, the environment we try to cultivate on retreat. You know, it's basically fairly simple here. There's no entertainment beyond these Dharma talks and Q&A in the morning. That's about it, the meals. Um, that, that Really, that sense of, of uh, inwardness can be helpful. And so from that seclusion, you can begin to see this process clearly and start to learn how, be- how it's best for you to work with it. But obviously, this is not how we live our lives in this secluded environment. We're going to be out there in the world in its busyness and its total array of tantalizing objects and experiences just laid out before us. So what the Buddha said is about the source of papancha, said, if there is nothing found there to delight in, welcome, and hold on to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, aversion, views, doubts, and conflict, and so on. And what's interesting about this is it's not that we can't find joy in the world or delight in the things of the world or sublime experiences that we might have. But there is that, always that reference that where we get caught is in the holding on to, the, 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 the grasping that happens. That's where the problem is. And so our best ally is our mindfulness, really just noticing when that happens. To be, be willing to look very clearly at our thoughts and to see them for what they are. As Joseph Goldstein said so helpfully to me years ago, thoughts only have the power that we choose to give them. If we don't recognize them, if we buy into them, they completely define our world, our reality. And you've all had that experience of recognizing a thought, seeing it for what it is, and it just goes poof. It just evaporates. And there's a world of difference between those two experiences. Once we start to see that, see thoughts as just energy, as experiences that arise and pass, are conditioned like anything else, we recognize we don't, ha- we don't have to be a victim of our thoughts, at the mercy of our thoughts, that there actually is choice there if we can be mindful of them, if we can recognize them. And so naming the kinds of thoughts that we have is very helpful, planning, fantasizing, remembering, romancing, whatever it is, uh, to name whole constructs of thoughts, going home, work, seeing Melinda. So you just see that you've been lost in that construct, that creation can be helpful. I saw for myself uh, a little while ago, I was reflecting on a, 
a difficult family situation involving <clears throat> two of my family members and wondering about the motives of one of the people. And, you know, you sort of go, I bet what they were really, uh, 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 and, you know, creating a whole reality for them. And I thought, as I, you know, there was really a sense of, yes, you know, that's, that's what they're up to. And it wasn't, you know, complimentary. You can sort of get the sense. But I recognized as I was getting involved in this, and I could feel the opinion solidifying about this person. And I really recognized that unless I let go of that, it was going to define my relationship to him. That when I saw him next, these projections that I had, I had no information whether they were based in reality or not would color my relationship and that I really needed to let them go. So see how the papancha can cause his sense of separation or judging. See how the rush of thoughts creates a sense of self, whether it's a self that's better than or worse than or the same as, doesn't really matter. When you notice that, when you notice that process, that the power of that construct is greatly reduced. There's a possibility of really letting it go, of finding some freedom from it. For me, another thing that was really helpful, I've talked to people about this in interviews, um, you know, having done many retreats, and especially towards the end of the retreat, just like you are probably doing, all of these thoughts of what I'll do when I go home will start to come up. And, you know, there's, there can be a sense because of the renunciation of retreat, it's very much focused to what I want to do or get or eat or have or see. You know, it's, it's that grasping mind at work coming out of the sense of, of simplicity and renunciation here. And I would spend hours creating these, you know, of dinner parties I would do and ways I'd redecorate and project. You know, they're always quite involved, you know, big projects I'd take on. And after a while, seeing the repetitive nature of this, I started to actually check in how many of my fantasies ever came true in the way I imagined them. Can you guess the percentage? Big zero. I mean, literally, never the way I imagined them. The big projects, still dusty plans in the back of the mind. You know, the dinner parties, got home, couldn't be bothered, didn't want to do that at all. The things I wanted to eat, you know, it just wasn't that important once I got out and involved in my life, whatever it was. So that really, for me, helped to undercut this tendency to live in that fantasy world. Oh, another yogi uh, I spoke to said she really saw how the papancha gave her the illusion of being in control. And once she really started to question that, really see, is this true? And that it wasn't true, it for her really helped her to become less interested in Papancha and, and just spending, choosing to spend time in that reality. It can also be helpful to bring awareness into the body. I've often noticed that when we're caught in papancha, there's strong physical sensations. Heart rate goes up a little, the sense of energy, tingling. You know, if it's, if it's something pleasant, there's kind of an uplifting energy. If it's something you're worried about and you're obsessing about all the things that can go wrong, there might be a sense of contraction. So just to be willing to notice what happens in the body around the papancha. For me, I've particularly uh, found it useful to notice that whenever I have thoughts, and it's true that most of these kind of thoughts involve this, but involve a strong sense of self, of me doing something or being in some particular way, there really is this physical constriction in, in the body. And so for you to discover if that's so for you, what that is, for me it's often right here around the the center of the, between the eyes and the forehead there. And if I notice that in the body, I, that sometimes that's the first thing I notice. And I look in the mind and recognize I've just been completely lost in, you know, starring as Sally in this film that I've created. And sometimes it's the other way. I notice that the thoughts are ramped up 
and I go to the body and I find that contraction. But what really helps is loosening the contraction really loosens a sense of self, that, that fixation with the thought. So it can be helpful to explore, you know, and I think you'll have plenty of opportunities in the upcoming days. If you notice Papancha, what's going on in the body when this kind of um, thought process is going on? What's really important, though, whatever kind of interventions uh, that you use, whatever kind of skillful means you bring to this process, to really do it with compassion and kindness and even humor. I mean, once you, if this concept is new for you, I'm sure it's just the concept that's new, not the experience. Just to say, papancha, you know, to use that as a note, here we go again, or there it is again, papancha. Just saying that word can make me smile, so just see if that works for you. Because it's such a strong tendency for us. We've, we've trained ourselves for thousands of hours. We've perfected this ability to live in this fantasy world. It's understandable that we'll get caught again and again. So really to be compassionate about it. But sometimes we really do need to bring that sort of wisdom in and just say enough. I'm not going there. It's not worth it. Cut it out. Stop it. Whatever phrasing might work for you to really see that it is wasted time. It's really expended energy that has no, uh, virtually no redeeming qualities. Now, as to, 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 and the more we see that, that our moods and our responses, our perceptions and this proliferation is not an objective truth, but really part of a causal process. It's very conditioned. We can, it undercuts that tendency. But this understanding this doesn't deny um, the richness of our interior life. You know, of course, our, our, our um, relationship to our moods and our emotions can be very alive. And it's one of the ways in which we engage in the world. It can be very joyful, feelings of connection and creativity. It's not to dampen that down, but really seeing the, the, the possibility of a different relationship to that, where there's a recognition of when it's, it's um, immediate and present moment, and it's, it's connected and it's alive, as opposed to when we're off in some idea of how it is, not the reality of how it is. And so we can loosen the identification a little with what's going on in our interior landscape. And again, what that allows is choice points. You know, if you have this awareness, if the awareness gets that subtle, you can allow the the experiences, the states of mind that are conducive to wholesomeness, to skillfulness. You know, the many things we've talked about, the seven factors of awakening or the beautiful qualities of the Brahma-viharas or gratitude and generosity, that this this can become more natural for us than the fantasy realm, the the fixated realm of Papancha. And seeing how Papancha often leads us into a sense of separation, into conflict, into judging and comparing. It can be helpful to really acknowledge that we need to find refuge from the busyness of the world, from the onslaught of our thoughts and and the impact that things can sometimes have. And that's why it's so helpful to be out in nature, especially as we're blessed with this beautiful weather. There's a simplicity and a clarity to the natural world that just can cut through the papancha, or you can see if you get lost in papancha about it, oh, this is so beautiful, I should go and write a poem, and I can only write good poems if I have my special poem book, you know, and I need to go get a better book, and then I'll... You lose the moment to just be with things as they are in all their beauty. It's why Zen gardens are so powerful. If you've ever been to 
a Zen garden, you know, whether it's one of moss and stone or the raked sand, there's a power to that simplicity that just quietens the mind and allows this direct knowing. So we begin to recognize the mind that's at peace, the mind that's at ease. This is an important part of the process of letting go of the tendency to proliferation, letting go of the running commentary. And it can be like that beautiful experience when the heating system turns off, when it clunks and hums and buzzes for a while, and then it stops. Ah, that can be the experience of letting go of papancha. But as Ajahn Sumedho would say, you have to know papancha to know non-papancha. So we really need to get familiar with it. But the more we appreciate that quiet mind, the more we trust it as a place we can actually access and as a place of real truth and beauty, a place of coming home, there's just less willingness to live in that world of illusion that Papancha creates for us. There's a a sense of um, joy, not necessarily ecstatic, but just that the simplicity of quiet, of peace, that becomes more and more where we want to spend our time. So we're less willing to live in the world of illusion. We want to live here and now where life actually is truly lived. So I just end again with the words of the Buddha. This is a short sutta called Knowing a Better Way to Live. I heard these words of the Buddha one time when the Lord was staying at the monastery in the Jetta Grove in the town of Savasti. He called all the monks to him and instructed them, Monks! And the monks replied, We are here. I like that because it's kind of cutting through the papanchas, like, Are you there? Yes, you're here. Okay, listen. The Buddha, the Blessed One taught, I will teach you what is meant by knowing a better way to live alone. Monks, please listen carefully. Blessed One, we are listening. The Buddha taught, Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, The practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today. To wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day, one who knows the better way to live alone. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.